0: in the reading corner today i'm delighted to be welcoming the three fan brothers and they are the creative partnership behind the picture books the night gardener where the ocean meets the sky the barnabas project and It Fell from the Sky. They've also illustrated books for other authors, including The Darkest Dark by Chris Hadfield and The Antlership* Ship by Dashka Slater. So I'm sure you've answered this question before, but the most obvious one to begin is how on earth does a partnership between three of you work?
1: Yeah, so for this book in particular, we've all worked on non-picture book related creative pursuits in the past. We've Tried to get a screenplay made, so we all worked on that. So we have a long history of collaborating together, going back to our childhood. So as far as the actual process of making the book, we don't really have set roles. It's organic. Harry and I have done books before, so we're used to that. Third party (laughs) with Devin on board, I guess we compared before being like a solo artist versus being in a band. So everyone's contributing their own instrument, their own sound. We all came up with the designs and the drawings. We worked on the rough together and the story. And for the finished artwork, since we work traditionally and digitally, we do drawings and then we composite them in Photoshop. So any finished illustration can be a combination of all those various drawings that we've done that we hopefully bring together in cohesive whole.
0: That's really interesting. So we couldn't point to a spread and say that it belonged to any one of you. You will have all Contributed to that. You talk about it being a little bit like a band of musicians. I wonder if it's also a little akin to perhaps working in an animation studio where you have to make something look continuous, but there might be many different yeah, people I, working I, on it.
2: That's a very good comparison. And actually, there are aspects of our work that are very sort of animation like because we work digitally. So even if it's hand drawn, it's still at some point digitally manipulated. Eric and I, Devin too, are working more on the iPad. So there's a program on the iPad called Procreate, and it's like Photoshop in that it works in layers as animation does. Well, We almost build up our scenes that way, where sometimes we'll just, we'll start with the background and then we'll build it up and we'll each sort of contribute different elements, bring them all together in Photoshop and build it up in layers. And it gives us An amazing amount of flexibility. That's what's great about it. We often have all the different elements, like all the different characters and so on, on different layers or drawn separately. So we can move each one of those characters, make them bigger or smaller, and manipulate them that way, as one would do in animation.
0: Oh really interesting. Yeah. Devon, tell us a little bit more about your involvement here with your brothers. What was it like coming into a process that was quite well established with regard to picture bookmaking.
3: Yeah, they definitely had a, obviously a ton more experience and knowledge when it comes to bookmaking than I did. I think the band analogy is a good one. I always say I'm like Ringo in the band. And I really felt like one of the things that made it possible for us to work together, because we don't live in the same house anymore, which we did previously, that we had apartments one on top of each other, is now I'm galudite and not the best with technology. But all of us having cell phones and being able to text through the process of making this book, I think was invaluable um, because we'd be all working separately, but you can text images back and forth, make adjustments and text them back again. We were texting the written parts back and forth all the time. So it made it so easy to collaborate. Honestly, without the technology to do that instantaneously, I don't know how we would have done it in the same way.
0: Just before I leave talking about you as a partnership, I am intrigued to have three such creative People coming from one family. And I've read the dedication, I think it's the latest one, it fell from the sky, where you're dedicating it to other brothers and sisters, and you talk about them as being creative as well. So I am intrigued to know. Does this come from creative parents that nurtured your creativity as you were growing up?
2: Yeah, they definitely our parents, both of them are very creative. Our mum's professional musician, harpist. Our dad's a philosophy teacher, but he also has very creative sight. And both of them really encouraged us. And Eric and I, our very first book was when we were just little kids. We made this crayon book about dinosaurs because we were obsessed with dinosaurs. And our mom helped us put that together and bound it up. And she was like our editor. I think that sort of planted the seed. The Barnabas Project
0: is a story about failed experiments, toys that don't make the grade and are destined to be recycled. The plot really is about them escaping from captivity, but of course it's about much more than that. Seems are very personal to readers. And I know that the young readers that I've worked with have very different responses to my own. Do you think about things and messages as you're creating your stories, or do you not even know that they're there?
1: All our books have started with a standalone image that we Either drew separately or drew together. And that's acted as a springboard for the story. There's something about the image that's attracting you. And as you interrogate that image and try to find the story, then the themes come from that. And I think for the Barnabas Project, we all felt a little bit like misfits growing up (laughs) in school and stuff. So I think we related to Barnabas as being a misfit. And in some ways, all those failed projects hidden away represent all the failed projects that we've worked on through our lives that we put so much. Loving to, but never saw the
3: light of day definitely evolved as we're doing the story but i found that really is what kids connect with is that idea i think everyone no matter how things may appear on the surface at some point feels like they don't fit in or feels like a failed project themselves some more than others and i think that story element is what appeals to kids that idea that what does it mean to be perfect and in the case of in our book kind of the villains of the story, the green rubber suits can only see the flaws in Barnabas that his eyes are too small and that he's not fluffy enough. But then the question that's not asked literally in the book, but I hope that kids and parents are getting is can they see that he's brave and compassionate and loyal and all those other qualities and which qualities are more important? And what does that mean when you're talking about perfection? So it raises those kinds of questions. I've had some great discussions with kids around those ideas.
0: That's really interesting. I said that children respond in very different ways. And the stark stamping of fail on the domes is something that they always respond to because Mm -hmm. children can easily be made to feel that they failed at something.
2: If you think about the educational system, the way it's set up, it is very much based on success, failure, whether you pass tests, fail tests, It's always judged in those very sort of black and white ways. And then that just continues as you grow older. The idea of success and failure and how it's defined.
1: And you fear that, that red stamp. <laughs>
2: whatever, yeah. And I think everyone experiences that red stamp at some point <laughs> in their life.
1: I think success and failure are both intertwined. I probably learned more from my failures than I have from successes mm-hmm. and, and needed that to provoke me to, towards that. Even all the projects we did, that you learn something from each time you do something. And if you're scared of failure, you can't actually progress.
2: It's more the perception of what failure is, I think, is unhealthy because failure is a great thing. That's how you learn. Because no one that ever got good at anything got there by not failing. People that are at the very top of the level, I mean, they failed thousands of times. People don't see the concert pianist, all the scales and all the practicing that led up to that and all the mistakes or a figure skater. How many times does a figure skater fall? To see the end result.
0: Absolutely. Evan, what were the things for you that you were aware of as you were creating the book?
3: I think one of the things that was always so important to us is we're all a mixed race. We're all half Chinese. Now that's very common. We were going, it was not common. There's a lot of racism, and I know certainly I felt like the other that didn't really fit in anywhere. But I know that children today would feel that way for other reasons. I think the most important element. Or the thing that I hope that comes across is that idea that you don't have to fit the mold that society has decided that you should fit true to yourself and to be happy and to be successful. Because who's deciding that these creatures are failures? Those kind of underlying themes are the ones that are important to me Mm. that underpin the story.
0: We're talking very seriously about this picture book, but it is very playful. And it seems also to be a recurring theme in your work about a world that is quite close by, but nobody sees it. With the night gardener, if only you followed the gardener, would you come to some other world that you can't quite reach?
1: I think that's always been with us since we were kids, ever since reading, like, Where the Wild Things Are, when the walls of his bedroom dissolve, present this other world. It's that idea of imagination, somewhere secret or somewhere magical. And I think that's just something that resonates with us in those books, that just the idea of something. If your imagination or your curiosity permits you to enter this other world, then you'll see all this amazing stuff. I think that's just something that's always resonated with us since we were kids.
0: And that other world, do we really get the sense in your work that it's so close by? That world is really part of our world, but we just don't see it.
1: Yeah. And I think in our most recent book, It Fell from the Sky, it's all about recontextualizing something that. You You see as ordinary, but seeing the miraculous and the wonder in the ordinary. And that's one of the themes of that book, among others. Yeah.
0: And just while we're talking about recurring imagery, the moon seems to feature very large in a lot of your books as well.
1: Yeah, I guess there's something magical about the light. There's darkness and light. I think at night, the moon reveals enough for you to to see, but it casts that sort of mysterious light on things, which seems to open the possibility of imagination and stuff.
0: It seems like we are segueing into talking about the new book. It fell from the sky. It's a story set in an uncultivated patch of land. I take it from the flowers that are growing there. And then one day, an it fell from the sky. The it we know is a marble. But to the anthropomorphized insects in the garden, it's an object of wonder with a capital W. And The spider believes it belongs to him. And he sells tickets to see this marvellous exhibit, raising the prices as demand grows. He's such a capitalist.
1: <laughs> yeah, the story started as just this idea of something mysterious falling amongst these insects and they each have their own take about so it started as a story about perception and then as we worked on the story it became this sort of counter narrative against rampant materialism and greed and he sets up this exhibit but then it becomes greedy and raises the ticket price from one leaf to two and so there's also the idea that sort of that capitalism is always transactional where it's taking something from the environment in this case the leaves are being <laughs> taken to, to enjoy the spectacle And again, that's a story that started just as an image of a marble surrounded by these insects wearing top hats.
0: Marbles like moons are beautiful things. And it's something magical about the colors that are captured in the glass. And you use the very simple, I think it's called like a cat's eye marble. Yeah, We wanted
2: an ordinary one. We all collected antique marbles. For a time and the marble that's in the book is actually one of our marbles. <laughs> but there's all kinds of really fancy antique marbles. They have these what are called pontil marks on each end, which is where the glass is broken off, and that's how you can tell it's a really old marble. It has these rough spots on each end, and there's all these different types. There's that have like a lattice on them instead of a cat's eye. Yeah, they're incredibly beautiful.
0: So this marble falls from the sky. I come to the other objects at the end because I'm wondering now whether. That knight in shining armour is on your desk somewhere.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I used to collect knights. I had a huge army. Yeah, my best friend also collected them. we'd have these big battles.
0: I suspected there were little bits of childhood coming in there. You're very specific in the vegetation that you have growing in this place. Dandelions, clover, buttercups, they're very evocative plants that grow in wild spaces. I wondered whether there was any consciousness behind that choice or not.
2: Not really. We wanted to keep it prosaic and we didn't want anything too exotic.
0: That's interesting because they are ordinary, but they're so beautiful.
2: Dandelions are (laughs) underrated. They are. I love them. (laughs) And they're just fun to draw. And we wanted the visual impact of, you know, how they go through the different changes. Yeah, and they
1: They kind of become like a spherical, celestial kind of shape before they blow away.
0: And they do blow away in your story. And then they've regrown at the end of the story. So I suppose you can show that through the image. But I also felt combined with the the paired back colour, the largely monochromatic palette that you're using, that allowed you to do so much with that particular, the beauty of that plant, but also the combination of that and the night sky and the light. Maybe I should start with a very simple question, which is can you tell me something about your choices that you were making with colour?
1: We've always wanted to do a monochrome book just because there's something about when you're doing like pencil that is lost when you color it just texturally and dramatically. And then thematically, we thought the contrast between the colorful marble, which is to them is fallen from another dimension. So it's got Lovecraftian color out of space idea. of You're encountering something that you can barely comprehend. So I think we wanted to emphasize that in their world, so that the color was one way of introducing that. And then to have the only other color is, up until the end spread, is the leaves that are used as money. So that's just, I guess, the idea that the influence of the marble, the color of the marbles spread to the money, which represents the spider's greed, I guess you could say. That was our thinking behind the color choice.
2: Yeah, visually, we really wanted that contrast, where the marble would seem extra otherworldly and mysterious.
1: We always loved that. Yeah, the Wizard of Oz kind of influenced. (laughs) Just the idea that the color can demarcate two different worlds.
0: We're back to those different worlds again, and the humor once again that these objects are so prosaic. I think you have a safety pin and a pin tack at the end. Yeah,
1: no <laughs> yeah, yeah. comprehension of our culture. It's kind of like anything can be miraculous in a way if you recontextualize it and take away your built-in conceptions and knowledge about something. Is that everything is intrinsically magical mm-hmm. and just by its very existence, especially?
2: And I think that relates back to childhood itself In a way As an artist, I guess I'm always trying to get back to that To be able to look at things With that wonder and that amazement And that mystery And I think it's always there It's just that we lose the ability To really perceive it that way
0: I mentioned earlier the playfulness In the work There's definitely humour Whether it's the little worker bee Flying off with his briefcase (laughs) Or when you talk about the five-legged monster that basically is the hand of the child coming down. Obviously, the point of view is one of the insects rather than our point of view. My question is whether humour is not only important to you in your storytelling, but in the way that you work together as well.
1: I think particularly because some of the themes are serious, we want to lighten it a bit and not make it didactic. We wanted it to be funny and charming, not too heavy. So... I think humor helps balance that underneath the surface. There's some serious ideas going on.
3: Working together. And I think the humor honestly really helps with that too, because you have to have a sense of humor when you're collaborating. You have to be able to laugh at each other and make jokes. And that's what makes sometimes what can be stressful work a lot more mm. tolerable is to have that to be able to joke around and have a sense of humor
0: about it. I can see lots of threads or connections mm. in your work. So for example, if I just take the two books that we've mainly talked about here, The Barnabas Project and It Fell from the Sky, to some extent one is the spider is the capitalist and Barnabas is the victim of that kind of capitalism. They're both ensemble pieces in a way. we have got an ensemble of characters in both of those books. But I wonder from your point of view whether you see threads of ideas Circle and come
2: back to you? Definitely. I think we are attracted to certain themes, and that sort of showed up in our just our standalone work. Like before we got into picture books, we were both just doing our own illustration and selling our work online. And then, as Eric said, all of our picture book ideas came from those standalone images. So definitely, we would be attracted to certain themes, and I think that's really apparent if. Anyone looking at our work would notice that. And Eric and I, we do have a similar aesthetic. Our styles are different, but we have a similar aesthetic. We tend to like the same sort of things. And so that that makes collaboration a lot easier. Because even though our styles are slightly different, when we work together, we're able to meet in the middle. And we're both going for the same vision. And And I think we try to be as accommodating as we can as far as our styles go, where we've almost created this alternate style. I don't think it could be called the fan of the style because I think it's a little different from either of our individual styles.
0: Were you able to retain the copyright on your imagery? Because I know that you do create quite a lot of things from the images.
1: We do for any art prints or anything as long as it's not book related. Sometimes it's not really applicable with picture book art but then sometimes for for selling prints and stuff like that it, it makes sense I think and for some of the things we sell. Yeah, we did ask them about that and they said it was fine. So Terry and I were doing that quite a bit before. That's actually what led to us getting into picture books is our agent saw our work online and approached us. So for any budding picture book artists out there, a good platform is just getting your work out. It doesn't have to be necessarily picture book related, but just to have your artwork in the public sphere, so to speak.
0: It's a serious question because it's a profession, it's an occupation and people have to to make a living and it can be quite hard to do that. So I think there is a business side to consider.
2: Definitely. And as Eric said, like we worked quite a few number of years as illustrators just selling our work online and that's what enabled both of us to quit our day jobs and we we're both making a good living off that. And we had always been interested in picture books, but we didn't really know how to get in and we were intimidated by it and had no idea. So That opportunity just came to us without us really looking for it at all.
0: Devin, a question for you. Do you see yourself being involved in a future picture book making opportunity, the three of you together or on your own?
3: I hope so. Yeah, we have some plans for some different things for the future. And then, yeah, I'm always working on stuff. I'm working on a a poetry book now, but yeah, always working on different things. But I loved collaborating with Terry and Eric, so would love to do so again in the future.
2: As it happens, we are collaborating on something. (laughs) He's being a little... (laughs) Well, I don't know (laughs) what (laughs) secret.
0: Thank you for taking time to talk to me today in the Reading Corner. I feel like we've skimmed the surface because I know there's so much more in your wonderful books to talk about. But what I'm hoping is that you may get across to this neck of the woods one of these days and uh, we'll be able to hear more from all of you then.
3: That would be lovely. And thank you so much, Nikki, for having us on your podcast. It's been so much fun chatting with you.
0: In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the
1: Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.